Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So hello, my name is Ashley, and I am a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Destiny O. Birdsong. She is a writer from Shreveport with work featured in Paris Review, African American Review, and Catapult, among other publications. And she joins Feminist Book Club to talk about her debut novel, Nobody's Magic. Destiny, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So my first question is a question that we ask our authors who join us is, what is your definition of feminism? Hmm. Um, I would say that it changes all the time. Um, It's certainly changed over the past few years. But I often go back to something that Alice Walker said about womanism, which is that perhaps with a little bit of expansion. um, So Walker said that womanism is about the upliftment of um, both men and women. And I think that it's important to make that a bit more gender inclusive. I just think that feminism is about the upliftment of people of all genders, right? And creating equity among the genders. I think it is about the championing of communities out of which women come. You know, I think it's I think it's a lot of things, but I think that if if I had to sort of sum it up very quickly, I feel like those are the two, two or three most important aspects for me. Thank you. And thank you for um, mentioning Alice Walker and her definition of womanism. So as we continue, what is your what is nobody's magic about? So. <laughs> Again, I think it's hard to sum it up, but, I, but if I had to, I would say it's a, it is a collection of narratives about endings and beginnings, right? So in each of the triptychs, the women have endings of some sort, right? So for Suzette, there's the end of her childhood. For Maple, there's the end of her mother's life. For Agnes, it's the end of a dream. And at the the sort of like intersection of like their lives like where this ending where these endings happen they also have to figure out how to begin again like where do they want to go who do they want to love who do they want to be and so that's that for me is is sort of like the through line for all of the narratives of course they're all black women with albinism they all have connections to my hometown they are all entering and exiting romantic relationships, right? And I think that all of those things sort of inform how they choose to move on with their lives in the wakes of these like losses and like really drastic life changes. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's the gist of it. I mean, there's lots of like, (laughs) there's lots of sex and there's lots of like, you know, really explosive conversations and there's you know, you know, some crime, there are queer characters, there are sex positive characters. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's a lot of things, but I think it really is just about where, where does one go in the wake of an ending? What happens next? 
Yes, you touched upon in your answer, what is my next question? I think when you're often when um, sex scenes are written about, it can be very generic or it can just kind of be very surface level, but the sex scenes that you wrote were sensual and passionate and about discovery. So how did you decide writing the characters and how they discover their sexuality? I had started writing the book already, but I came to the I came to each of the triptychs kind of like one at a time. Like said, like the like Agnes was first, and then I think maybe I can't remember who was next. It was either Suzette or Maple. But when I got to Maple's narrative, I actually wanted it to be like a comedy. So like I wanted it to be a woman who just who's like who like hasn't had sex for a really long time. And then she decides, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find somebody. I'm going to do it. And it's just, and and it was supposed to be just a comedy of errors about like her sort of figuring out like how to make this happen. And there are all kinds of other things that are like getting in the way. And I think that was maybe the first time that I thought about how sex would play a role in the novel. And of course, Maple's story doesn't turn out that way per se, but that initial idea got me thinking. Around the same time, I took, um, oh wait, I think that may have been a little bit later. So I was kind of finishing up the novel, like right before it went on submission. And I took a class about sex writing with a writer named Meg Pillow, and it was really helpful. We read some stories with great sex scenes. One of them was uh, Roxanne Gay's I Am the Knife, I think. Okay. Um, and then. And then we read some 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 terrible sex scenes. I won't mm-hmm. name people who wrote those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it really put in perspective. I had written some of them, but in the revision process, it really put in per, um, in perspective for me how I wanted sex to play out in each of the triptychs, right? And there's sort of an ironic twist in Maple's um, triptych. I won't I won't give any spoilers, but. One of the things that Meg said during our class was that sex scenes should push the narrative forward, that it's not that they're not just there for like titillation, although titillation is a wonderful thing, right? Like I I love a a good, you know, (laughs) you know, uh, dopamine uh, 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 enhancing like sex scene, right? But in the context of the narrative, like, what is it doing and how is it showing you who the characters are, who they might become, what they want, what they're trying to do? And so I really thought critically about that during the revision process. Um, And there are great sex scenes in literature that I really love. I love the scenes between Ajax and Sula Mm. in in Morris and Sula. You know, Mm -hmm. I love... We didn't get a whole lot of it in high school, but I remember reading, um, because I grew up in Louisiana, we uh, we read Kate Chopin, who was a Louisiana mm-hmm. writer. Um, she wrote a book around the turn of the 20th century called The Awakening. And it was a very sort of like late 19th, early 20th century description of sex, but it was, but they were so good. And there was also this kind of queer love, which I don't think anybody ever talked about, but um, she had a friend who was like, and it's funny because she was like the friend was like pregnant all the time and it was one of the things that sort of propels the edna the main character to sort of like leave her marriage because she's just like i don't want to be this woman who's like all she does is like have babies and you know like 
But her friend was, like, pregnant all the time, but her body was, like, described very sensually. And, like, mm-hmm. there seemed to be, like, a very, there was a very close bond between them. Um, and there's a lovely quote uh, from the book that I, I used to have hanging in my office, and I can't remember it exactly, but the two women are together, and it says, um, oh, I think it's, um, who knows what, what metals the gods use to forge the subtle bond that we often call sympathy, that we might as well call love. And like, that was about the two friends, you know? So there was lots of like, there's just lots of sensuality in that book. And I think um, that's something that I wanted to happen in Nobody's Magic too, that there was sex, but there's also sensuality. There's also desire there. I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I love writing about black love because yes. black love is a political act you know what i mean like the 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 state has made it such you know like and it's like revolutionary and it's transformative and so i wanted all of those things to come into play in in the book like as you know the book is discussing the women and their bodies and their bodies in concert with other people you're you're joining timeless works and how sexuality is viewed and how we view love, especially black love, which is could not be more needed in our time of and day. And so thank you for that. Um, you you talked about writing about your hometown. What was writing about Shreveport like for you? Well, it's interesting. I never thought I would write a book set in my hometown, right? Um, I've written, you know, I'm a poet, so I've certainly written poems about home. Um, But I think when it came to prose, my first thought was, you know, I wanted to write about where I was. So um, when I first started writing fiction, my characters were always either where I live now, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, or they were like at different sites that I had visited as a writer. So like writers retreats, residencies. uh, writers conferences and I think that's good but I I I didn't think about this at the time but in hindsight I think what happened was that when I started to write about these women I wanted to put them somewhere where I knew they would be safe right Mm -hmm. and so that's that that's also in relation to like their families right they have these really complicated family structures um and they don't always get the love that they that they need like as they're evolving, but it's clear that their families love them, that they're wanted. It's clear that like, in most cases, the family members have their best interests at heart. I think also in terms of the setting, like that's what I was thinking about, like where where do I feel safest? And I feel safest around the people that I know love me. I feel safest around the people that I love. And many of them are (laughs) in the city where I grew up. And so, it made sense for me to put the, I, I guess, again, it wasn't, it wasn't even like a, I sat down and sort of contemplated different locales, but I think that in hindsight, like that was what my instinct sort of compelled me to do, which was to put them in a place that felt safe for me and, and that I, and that I felt would be safe for them, you know? Yes. Um, it's interesting that you said that you didn't even think you would write about your hometown and your work, but you wanted you used your hometown as a haven for your characters also mm-hmm. because it's connected to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I'd, grown, if I'd grown up somewhere else, they would have been, <laughs> they would have been in that place, but I'm glad they landed where they did because, you know, it also allowed me to think about my 
history with the city. And it's a really interesting place. You know, it's it's the South. Um, it's the Deep South. It's also close to the Mid-South. It's close to the Southwest. It's, um, it is a city in Louisiana. So there's like Louisiana culture there, you know, there's like Cajun and Creole culture there. So it's for me, it really is like a crossroads city. And, and so it really worked well in, in terms of like the women being at the crossroads of their lives and the city kind of shaped, the city also shaped some of their decisions. And that's true for me too. So it, it's, it, I was lucky to be born there, but I think that, yeah, like having, having been raised there made that an easy decision. I'm craving for books that aren't less London or Paris. So what was your intention for writing about people with albinism? So I had a friend who wrote uh, African-American romance and we're, we were having a conversation one day and she had noticed that in, you know, lots of the books that she read, the protagonist would be sort of like this, like very traditional and, you know, let's be honest, sort of very like narrow definition of black beauty. She would be very fair skinned, sometimes, you know, like multiracial, long, flowing hair, thin, you know, perky breasts, like all of the sort of like tropes, right? That when we think of like beauty or whatever. And then she would look at the author photos and she would be like, oh, the authors look really different. And, uh, you know, and, you know, with all due respect, like there, there are tons of reasons why a writer might do that, right? But I remember in the conversation, I said to her, I just don't think I would ever want to do that. Like, I don't think I would ever want to write through a character that doesn't share my particular subjectivity. And, she, and to that, she replied like, oh, you know, I don't actually think that there, she's like, I haven't really encountered a lot of characters with albinism. Like you kind of see them here and there. Sometimes they're sort of supportive characters. They're doing other stuff, you know, in the narratives, but they're not the focus. And then the books that I read growing up and also in college, you know, people with albinism were treated with such disdain. But there's a chapter on whiteness in Melville's Moby Dick and like the, I've never finished Moby Dick because I got to the part of the chapter where he starts talking about the quote unquote albino man and I was just like fuck this I'm not I'm not reading the rest of this so I just closed it and, and never picked it up again have no desire to finish it wasn't interested in it when I picked it up but it is what it is um and you know in college I was reading I, I was a, I was a double major in English and history and my history professor was amazing like we would read novels alongside our historical texts and our textbooks and all that stuff and and because you know he was like you know you it, you can't really understand colonialism without understanding the way it shaped the cultures of the people who were being colonized so um so one of the books we read was a book by an Indian writer named Kamala Markandaya called Nectar in a Sieve and there's a the I think the main character's name is Rupi, maybe, and her grandson, Sakrabani, is born with albinism. And the belief was that he was sort of the curse. He was the family curse because the daughter had gone into sex work mm -hmm. because the family was starving. And like, 
And, and, you know, I mean, like, like the main character treats him lovingly, but like the way the people in the village responded to him, you know, like, I mean, it's just really, he's just a really, this really tragic character that comes like almost at the end of the book. I don't know if he ever has any dialogue, you know, like he's always seen through the eyes of the, of the, of the, um, the narrator and the main character. And so, I was I was thinking about all of those things when I started writing, and this isn't the first manuscript I've I'd written where the main character has albinism. There's another one in the in the vault, but I I think that's what I wanted. I wanted to write through. I wanted to create characters who shared my subjectivity, and I wanted them to be markedly different from the characters I'd encountered, and that was a really deliberate decision in that sense you know i mean i love the ways that this book has like sparked conversations about the ways that people have been talking about blackness you know i, I don't know that that's the thing that i sort of like foresaw mm -hmm. but i definitely wanted something that spoke to like my particular experience um because it's just not a there's just not a lot of it out there there are some books but I, I wanted to tell these particular stories in this particular way, and I wanted the characters to look like me. I did. And that way we don't get any books like Moby Dick. <laughs> we get I books know, right? from, from Melville. We get, we get the perspectives that we need from those who need to be telling it. Exactly. I think that was the thing that made me the angriest about it, because I'm like, he's talking about something for which he has no context. You know, like, like you are talking, you are talking about a condition from afar. You don't have it, right? Like, and, and he was, he wasn't, he wasn't talking about people with albinism writ large. He was talking about specifically, I believe, Black people with albinism, mm -hmm. right? Because they're so remarkably different from the rest of their communities. Like that was sort of the gist of his argument is that they're really isolated and like their lives are terrible because they're so like different from like the people out there supposed to look like. I mean, it was just a mess. Like, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I want something else. So one thing that I love that you do in the book is how the characters choose how they're going to reveal themselves to other people, especially when they're starting to feel comfort with that other person, um, and particularly with the men. How did you plot the paths of the men for this story in order to drive the story? Well, you know, I think the only one, and even he, like, change is very different like he is not exactly as i envisioned him i think the only one that like had a clear plan at the outset would probably be donnie mm -hmm. who's also like my favorite he's like my favorite guy in the book i i think he's amazing but i want i so in in his case i wanted him to be the kind of love interest that just like doesn't take a lot of like bullshit, right? So just a little background. Suzette's story was actually supposed to be a little different from from how it came out. So I had thought about having a character with albinism who was like a charlatan, right? So she's she's like she's like capitalizing on these myths about people with albinism having magical powers 
and she's like making money off of it. And she's like, but she has no power. <laughs> um, and she finally meets this guy who's just like, I don't believe you. I think you're full, of, you know, I think you're full of it. And and so that, that's not how the, the story ultimately plays out. But the sort of essence of that guy stays the same. You know, like I, I wanted Donnie to be a love interest who understood her and didn't just sort of like see her in her condition. Like he sees that and he's attracted to her, but he is also very clear about her shortcomings. You know, I think one of my favorite moments between the two of them is when he is sort of working outside the home, her dad's home garage. And she's like, why are you so mean to me? And he's like, I treat you like you treat all your friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, it's just like one of those moments where he's like, I'm not doing anything to you that you, that you haven't done to other people. And I, I, and I, you know, he says that because he, he, he gets her, he's been watching her. He understands what she's about. And, I wanted that to be true for him. And, you know, their relationship evolves over the course of the triptych. But I, you know, I really am the kind of writer who sees my characters as real people. And in that sense, they often have agency that, like, I don't always plan for or even agree with. <laughs> um, um, and so, you know, I think what happens which is kind of what happened with a character like Donnie is that like I have this idea of the kind of man I want and as I start writing that man takes on a life of his own you know I think maybe I think you know Prime is a is a really complicated character for me he started out for me as this kind of savior figure and it turns out that he's not that at all and that sort of just came out over the course of writing that particular part of the novel, I really just kind of let them talk to me and like, and you know, in, in, in concert with the main characters and I kind of let things play out as they're gonna play out. Or I might write something and it doesn't really work and so I'll scrap that and try again. But yeah, you know, I'll just, I'll start with the Colonel. I'll start, I'll, I'll start with a guy with a very sort of specific job in the story. And, and sometimes that job changes and, and, you know, and I think that's okay. Yes. Yes. I, I too loved Donnie and just because disclaimer, Suzette was my favorite character. <laughs> um, I could read a thousand pages of her life, even oh though I did goodness. love the other characters, but she mm -hmm. grabbed my heart and just to watch, mm -hmm. just to read her and Donnie as Suzette was becoming more into her own, not just being grown, but really understanding what she can do and seeing it through his eyes was so special. So, to, you know, for audiences to experience their story among the other characters in the book is just mm -hmm. truly special. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Love Suzette. I think that's yes, the yes. that's the that's the 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 vibe I've been getting from the um some of the bookstagram reviews. They're like more Suzette. Yes. You know, um which yeah. is great. you know, it's it's just wild how like people's like very different reactions to the book. One mm -hmm. of my first book reviews, which crushed me, mm -hmm. um, the writer was like, Oh, you know, Suzette's story was too long. And the ending mm. was predictable. Mm. And, you know, and then you have people who are like, no, 
Like, yeah, don't, it wasn't don't long lose enough. it. <laughs> right, right. So it's it's really fascinating. But I, I, I also love Suzanne. I don't have a favorite character, but I think the way that she evolved from like this original idea is was was really remarkable. And it's not something that I'm like taking full credit for at all. But I I also love the the character she she turned into and the woman she becomes in the course of in the course of her story. It yes. is it is it was a wonderful thing to be a part of. Yeah. Well, writing thank you, thank you for giving us her. And as we conclude this conversation, and this is one of my favorite questions, what bookstore would you like for our audience to buy Nobody's Magic from? Um, so there are two bookstores here in Nashville where there are signed copies. So if you mm-hmm. want a signed copy. You should absolutely patronize those stores. Um, Parnassus Books is one of them. And The Bookshop is another one. Um, And I love them both. You know, they're both independent bookstores. They are women run. And I I love that. Um, Another bookstore that I really love is Kindred Stories in Houston. Um, it's a black woman owned bookstore. They also do a lot of wonderful work in the community. Like they have a free library. They do like, you know, they do things with children and literacy. And so I think those are like great places, but those would be my top three. But I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to independent bookstores for all the wonderful work they do and the ways that they support writers. So if you can't get to any of those, and, but I do believe all three of them ship. So, um, and and Kindred Stories also has book plates. Um, so they don't have like my physical oh, awesome. pen on the page, but they've got book, book plates. But, you know, if not any of those, then definitely just an indie bookstore near you. If they don't have the book, you should encourage them to order it. <laughs> I think like, I think their patrons will enjoy it in my humble opinion. So thank you. Thank you for those bookstores. I'm sure our audience is familiar with those, especially Parnassus. And thank you for joining us to talk about Nobody's Magic. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.